Good morning. If you would uh, turn to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. We're starting in verse 7. If you would uh, stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, starting in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I had commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Dear God, our Father, our Lord, as I read this portion of Scripture, Lord, I can't help but reflect on, on my own life, Lord. I can't help but see the gospel message, Lord. As your wrath burned hot against me, a sinner, yet, Lord, you relented and showed mercy because of your Son. God, I pray, Lord, as we walk through this important passage uh, this morning, next uh, week, Lord, and, and the weeks to come, Lord, as we go through these chapters, Lord, that we continue to see your grace and mercy, Lord, that, that we see your wrath, your justice, your holiness, Lord, but we also see that it is your nature, Lord, to, to relent and show mercy, Lord. And so, God, we praise you and honor you and thank you and and we, we lift up your son, Lord, that both justice and mercy, Lord, can come together on the cross, Lord. Be with us this morning as we start to walk through this passage, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Every passage in Scripture, in fact, every word in Scripture is equally inspired by God, meaning there is no passage that is more authoritative than any other passage. All 
are equally authoritative because all are equally inspired by God, but that doesn't mean that each passage is equally important to the church. I say this because we come to a passage today that is extremely important, mostly because it's one of the most disputed, misunderstood, and abused passages in all of Scripture by the church. Heretics, and I don't use that word very often, I save that word for uh, people that deny key doctrines of the faith, doctrines that would make you not a Christian by believing it. So, so when I use that word, I use it, and I hope there's some, some weight behind it. Heretics use this passage that we just read this morning to attack both God's character and nature. And I think even many godly Christians come to this passage with a lot of confusion. All that to say, it's an important passage, and it's important that we get it right. So we are going to be spending time in this passage this morning, and, and really to understand it, understand what is happening between this conversation with Moses and God, we have to understand its context. It's one of the reasons we have slowed down as we've approached this chapter uh, the last two weeks and really focused on the Israelites' worship of this golden calf. It's important that we understand that Israel has sinned, and they didn't just sin, they have sinned horribly. Before Moses could even come down with the two tablets of stone, with the instructions for the tabernacle, he's still on the mountain getting instructions from God. Before he can even come down, Israel is worshiping a false god, a golden calf, and I have pointed out this, this would be equivalent to a, a wife cheating on her husband the night of their wedding before they could even get to the honeymoon. But I want, I want you to, 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 to grasp this because all analogies fails. It, it, it's much worse than that. Because this is not a mere man. Israel has sinned against the holy, just, perfect God of the universe, their creator. And for this sin, they deserve nothing less than his wrath. And that's very clear in our passage this morning. So I have three points of the sermon this morning, and the three points are God's wrath, God's intercessor, and then God's mercy. Uh, this is going to be a two-part sermon series. I started kind of getting all my notes and thoughts together and was going through this passage and realized this is going to take more than, than this Sunday to get through these three points. So we're going to cover the first two points in-depthly. We'll, we'll quickly go over the third point, but we'll, we'll spend most of our time next week uh, diving into God's mercy. But let's start with God's wrath. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. Now, remember, Moses is still on the mountain at this point. It's been 40 days. He hasn't come down yet. He doesn't know what's going on in the camp with the Israelites. God, uh, being all-knowing, knows what's going on. So God says to him, go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. 
They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, I want to be careful and clear because, again, our passage this morning is one of the most abused passages in all of Scripture. And as I've said, it's a, it's a proof text for a major heresy. So let's just be really clear on what's going on here. God is being very intentional with his words to Moses. And, and we will see this throughout this week and next week. He's not acting irrationally here. He's not acting purely out of emotion. He's being very intentional. And I, and I want to point a few things out. The first one is this. God is giving Israel exactly what they wanted. Look at verse 7. Look what he says. Again, very intentional with his words. He says this, Go down for your people. That's intentional. The personal pronoun there is intentional. God is saying, he's saying your people. He's not saying what he has said all the way up to this point in the book of Exodus. He's not saying my people. He says your people. There's a switch that happens in Exodus 32, verse 7. God says, go down for your people. And then in verse 9, he says this, I have seen this people. Again, not my people. This is very intentional. He's being intentional. He's picking his words carefully. Of course he is. He's God. He's not throwing a tantrum here. I want to be clear. There's people that interpret it this way, that he's just in such a rage, he's being emotional here. It's not like a father who's mad at his son, therefore tells his wife, your son crashed the car. Instead, he is giving Israel exactly what they asked for. Remember last week in Exodus 32 verse 1. It says this, you can look at it, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. They said Moses was the one that brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They completely ignore God's role in that. They're ignoring God. Therefore, in God's response in verse 7, in essence, God is saying to them, okay. If that's what you want, okay. He says in verse 7, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. It's almost word for word what the Israelites were saying down at the camp. Let me be clear on this. This this is a form of God's wrath on Israel. It's what I call, and I didn't make up this term, but it's what I call the wrath of divine abandonment. If you would turn to Romans 1.18, we were here last week, but I want you guys to see it. Most of us are familiar with this passage. I, I talk about it a lot. Again, it's one of those passages that just explains so much that we go to it over and over and over again. It's like Genesis 3. And there's so many different dimensions to it that we could look at it from different angles. Romans 1 verse 18. 
It says this, for the wrath of God, again, this is wrath, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now I said last week that Paul, as he was writing uh, Romans 1.18, uh, he had Exodus 32 on his mind. We, we learned this from Psalm 106. It's what he's quoting from, and, it, and it's reflecting on the golden calf narrative in Psalm 106. Uh, the Israelites, in other words, are the ones suppressing the truth by their unrighteousness. Now, now Romans 1, 18 through 32 is about all of mankind, meaning it's about us too. It's not just about the Israelites in Exodus 32, but Paul is reflecting on the golden calf narrative as a foundational example to how man sins. So again, look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. This is true for everyone, every man, right? As we see in this passage. But, but just think of the Israelites in Exodus. God has plainly showed himself to the Israelites. One of the purposes of the Exodus is that, that they would know him. That they would know who this Yahweh was. Ten plagues, the Red Sea parting. The fire on the mountain, God has shown himself to the Israelites. Look at verse 21. It says this, for although they knew God, I mean, Israel knew God. They seen his works, his acts. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. This is their sin. This is the core of, of, of all sin, but this is the Israelite's sin. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Psalm 106 puts it this way, they, the Israelites, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. That's foolish. So what did God do in response to this sin? What did God do in response to this idolatry? Well, Paul tells us and Verse 24, he says this, therefore, this is the response, God's response to their sin, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever, Amen. Again, God gave them up. This is his response. He gave them up. In other words, you don't want to worship me as God? You don't want to be my people? Okay. That's divine judgment. It's, it's God's wrath. Okay, you're not my people. You're this people. 
Exodus 32, 9, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Listen, one of the greatest judgments God can, can give to a person or to a people or to a nation is just by letting go and giving them what they want. And it's wrath. It's wrath because look where our sinful lusts will lead us. Verse 28. Look at verse 28. Romans 1, verse 28. And since they, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. There's that phrase again. God gave them up. This is wrath. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is exactly what happened to the Israelites. God gave them up to a debased mind. Now turn back to Exodus 32, and I want to show you what I mean by this. Again, I think Paul's reflecting on this narrative as he's talking about sins common to man. Exodus 32, verse 9. Verse 9 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, not my people, this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That's God's wrath. Listen, this is the first time God calls Israel a stiff-necked people, but, but it keeps going, especially in our, in our passage, in our a couple verses, the near context. Look at Exodus, you don't have to turn there, but Exodus 33, verse 3 says this, go up to, to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So one, one chapter later, and then he says it again in verse 5, Exodus 33, verse 5, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. Then he says it in the very next chapter, Exodus 34, verse 9, for it is a stiff-necked people. And it doesn't stop just in Exodus. Deuteronomy 9, 6 says this, for know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because you are righteousness, For you are a stubborn, literally in the Hebrew, stiff-necked people. Deuteronomy 31 verse 27. For I know how rebellious and stubborn, or or again, literally stiff-necked you are. Even in the New Testament, Acts 7 verse 51 says this. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you Always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Reflecting back to the golden calf narrative, as your fathers did, so do you. God called Israel a stiff-necked people. Have you ever asked why? I mean, that's a phrase, if you grow up in the church, you kind of just know Israel is a stiff-necked people, right, in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a phrase that, that, that we hear over and over again. But why use this name? Why a stiff-necked people. Have you ever wondered where this comes from? It, it means stubborn. I, I knew that as a kid growing up, but it, it, it's so much so that sometimes it's just translated that way. We saw that instead of saying stiff neck, it just says stubborn. You're a stubborn people. But stiff neck, it's actually a farming metaphor. A stiff neck animal is a bull or an ox 
that's unwilling to bow its neck to receive a yoke. It's a, it's a stubborn animal. So think about that for a second. What was Israel worshiping? A golden cow. Israel has become what they worshiped. A stubborn cow, a stiff-necked animal. Just an animal. This is clearly implied in our passage. Look at verse 8. They, that's Israel, they, they have turned aside quickly out of the way. Again, this is intentionally worded. God's being very careful in his wordings here. It's, it's like a stubborn animal, a cow that refuses to walk on the path, the way. They have turned aside. Look at verse 25 in Exodus 32. Verse 25, it says this. And then Moses saw the people had broken loose. For Aaron had let them break loose. So they're intentional words. It's like cattle breaking loose from their pen or from the herd. The Hebrew word means something like allowed to run wild. They're broken loose. Look at verse 26. Then Moses stood where? In the gate. This is what you would do with an animal. You'd stand at the gate and try to get him back into the, the pen in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me and the sons of Levi, what they do? Gathered around him like cattle gathering together. Listen, Israel has become what they worship, mindless, stiff-necked animals. This is clear in Hosea 4.16. It says this, like a stubborn heifer, a cow, Israel is stubborn. They have become what they worship. They've become what they worship, but, but I want to be clear because it, it's worse than just a cow because at least cows can move, hear, see, and eat. But they weren't worshiping a real cow. They were worshiping a golden cow, a metal image, an idol. Psalm 135, verse 15 says this. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. They work the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there breath in their mouths. In other words, they're dead, completely dead. Verse 18, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This is God's wrath on Israel. You want to worship a golden cow? Here's God's wrath. Okay. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. But that's not it. Right? Here's where the wrath comes in. It's found in Romans 1.28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Here's the lesson. It's an important lesson. You worship debased things, worldly things, you, you put value, in other words, that's what worship means, put worth 
into to worldly things, debased things, guess what? You end up with a debased mind. You'll become what you worship. And just a side note to, to try to show how this is true, right, to bring it to a modern kind of understanding. This is why we live in a sex-crazed culture. We made an idol of sex in the 60s and 70s as a culture, and we've become what we've worshipped, the base, sex craze. This is why it shouldn't be surprising that we have drag show stories hours in public libraries for kids. It's just Romans 1. Someone recently told me that we need to do more, more prophecy from the pulpit. Romans 1, we, there you go. It's prophecy. It's where we're at. We have gone so far as a culture that we are willing to sacrifice our children in abortion clinics for the goddess of sex. That's God's wrath on our nation, on our culture. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Again, it's no different than ancient pagan cultures who sacrifice their children to fertility gods. We just do it in a more sophisticated way. A doctor's office. It's divine judgment. Right? The wrath of divine abandonment. But that's not the only wrath that's in our passage this morning. And I want to be clear on this. The end of God's speech to Moses, we see a much more active wrath. God's wrath is not just passive. The, the wrath of divine abandonment is a very passive wrath. There's also an active wrath that's clear in our passage that really foreshadows hell. Look at verse 10. For therefore... Let me alone, now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. God is ready, because of this horrific sin, to completely destroy and consume Israel with his holiness. And then make a great nation out of Moses. Listen, Israel in this point of scripture, in this point of the book of Exodus, Israel is in danger of being completely wiped off the face of the earth. Therefore, this is really a pivotal point in Israel's history. Very important, important part of the narrative of Israel. And, and this is true because, I mean, it gets reflected back on over and over and over again in Israel. They understood how important this point in their history is. But before we move on to the next point, I, I, I really want to stop here and reflect for, for the, on this for a second because God's wrath is not popular to talk about today in, in church. I mean, not just in our culture, but in, in the church. In fact, if you listen to, to radio stations like Caleb, you're not going to hear anything about God's wrath. In popular Christianity, in fact, most churches and, and pastors talk about God's grace and love. And, and don't get me wrong, 
I believe our passage today, and especially as we get into next week, is just a great display of God's grace and his mercy, and it's displayed in such a marvelous way that points us straight to Christ. But pastors need to preach the whole counsel of God. We need to feel the weight of the reality of God's wrath. Let me just read one passage. This is Hebrews 10, 28. If you're not super familiar with your scriptures, that's, this is the New Testament. Okay. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, this is the New Testament, talking about the Old Testament right here. He's talking about the Old Testament law. It says this, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, this is reflecting on the Old Testament, but listen to this because this is the New Testament, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I don't think that's a verse that's quoted a lot in popular Christianity. I don't know if it's ever been quoted on K-Love, not to pick on K-Love, I listen to K-Love. It's not a popular verse. This is what John MacArthur says about this passage. There is nothing in the Old Testament that that compares in severity to the judgment described in the New. People often think of the Old Testament as showing a harsh, judgmental God, while the New Testament shows one of mercy and compassion, but, but God's mercy and his wrath are clearly revealed in both Testaments. It is true that we have a more complete and beautiful picture of God's grace and love in the New Testament, but we also have here a more complete and terrifying picture of his wrath. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is where the Israelites are. In our passage, if I can quote Jonathan Edwards, they are sinners in the hands of an angry God. And that's a scary place to be. So our first point this morning is God's wrath. Again, verse 10 says this, Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. It's God's wrath, but, but here's the good news. This leads right into our second point. God's intercessor. Now, an intercessor is a, a person who intervenes on behalf of another, right? especially by prayer. Now remember, Moses has not come down from the mountain yet, so he has not confronted Israel. This is a conversation between God and Moses that happens on the mountain. We, we've seen in, in the chapters of God giving the instructions of the tabernacle, Moses doesn't say a word. But then we get to this chapter and here's a conversation. I mean, just think about this. This is a conversation between God and Moses. 
And this is desperate times, let me just be clear. Moses understands this. God has just declared that he is going to destroy Israel. So here's Moses' response. Verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord. Now the word implored is an important and, and even interesting word. It has a connotation of weakness. In other words, humility. The root is, is used in many ways, but over and over again, this word is used as a humble way to approach God, looking for his favor in a weak position, in a humble position. So I want to be clear, because again, this passage is used in all different types of ways. Let's just be clear. Moses is not rebuking God here. He was humbly approaching God, asking for God's grace and favor, for God's mercy to to fall on the Israelites. He was coming to the Lord on behalf of Israel. He was interceding for them. And he does this with four arguments, really four appeals to the Lord. The first is this. He appeals to God's fatherly affection for Israel. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord and his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Now, just like God, Moses' words here are very intentional. Very intentional. Look at what he says. He says, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against who? Your people. Moses is reminding God of his fatherly love for Israel. He's reminding God that that Israel belonged to him. They are his people. And this is what we've seen throughout Exodus. Exodus 3 verse 7 says this, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings. Exodus 3.10 says this, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Exodus 5.1, it says this, After Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people Go over and over again. We see see God calling Israel my people out of his affection, out of his love, out of his, out of his care for the Israelites. In fact, in Exodus 4:22, God tells Moses to go and tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Moses is reminding God what he has seen through the book of Exodus over and over again. He's reminding God of his fatherly love for Israel. Now we're going to answer this question next week, which I'm sure many of you are asking right now. Did God have to be reminded? We'll answer that next week, but let's look at the second argument. Moses appeals to God's reputation among the nations. Remember, God has made it clear in the book of Exodus so far that that he saved Israel from Egypt to make his name known. 
And it's clear that it's to make his name known not only to the Israelites, but to Egypt and to the nations. Exodus 7 verse 5 says this, the Egyptians shall know, they shall know that I am, there's his name, right? I am the Lord Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Listen to, look at verse 12, Exodus 32 verse 12, it says this, is Moses crying out to the Lord, why, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? In other words, Moses was, was, was crying out to God again in humility. He was saying, your, your credibility is on the line. What will the nations say if you just destroy Israel. You, you saved them, pulled them out of Egypt just to destroy them in the wilderness. Moses was appealing to God's glory. He wanted God's name to be glorified among the nations. And, and it's clear in Scripture, throughout Scripture, that this is God's highest goal. His glory meaning Moses was appealing to God's greatest motivation, his own glory. Leads to a third argument or third appeal. Moses appeals to God's merciful nature. He just flat out says at the end of verse 12, listen to this, turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster, this disaster against your people. Remember, this is not a rebuke. In the Hebrew language, it makes it sound very clearly that Moses came in all humility. He knows Israel deserves God's wrath. He knows that. It's clear in his argument he knows that, but he's crying out for God's mercy. One theologian put it this way, there is, was nothing wrong with God's wrath. And we've got to understand that. There's nothing wrong with God's wrath. It is holy, it is just, and it is pure, as it always is. And it was an appropriate response to this situation. The Israelites deserve to be punished for their sins. That's why we spent so much time on Israel's sin, to see just how ugly the sin was, to realize this, this, this is their creator who they have rebelled against. They absolutely deserve God's wrath. And, and let me remind you before we get, get too, too arrogant, I guess, Paul takes that and applies it to, in the New Testament to all mankind. The Israelites deserve to be punished for their sins and there was nothing Moses could say to the contrary. All four arguments, pay attention to what he argues. There was one thing Moses could do, however, and that was to ask God to turn aside his wrath in a word to show mercy. Listen, for the sinner, which that's all of us, for the sinner, mercy is our only hope. And God's never obligated to show mercy. He would be 
completely just and holy if he never showed mercy. Adam and Eve sinned, wiped them off the face of the earth, there goes mankind. Holy and just. He's never obligated to show mercy. But as we will see in the next few chapters, mercy is an essential attribute of who God is. God is merciful. And Moses knows this. So in humility, he appeals to God's mercy. Which brings us to our fourth and final argument. Final appeal. Moses reminds God of the covenant he made with Abraham. Look at verse 13. It says this. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Now Moses is being really clever here. Like I said, his words are very intentional. I don't know if you caught it. He didn't say, right, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which was the, the normal way of addressing the patriarchs. Look at what he says, verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and who? Israel. Israel is the name that was given to Jacob by God in Genesis. It's the name that was passed down to Jacob's 12 sons. It's the name that was given uh, to those 12 sons of the nation that would come from the 12 sons, the nation of Israel. Moses is reminding God that Israel is a part of this promise he made to Abraham. Moses is saying, what, what about your promise to Abraham? So I want, you, I want you to see this because Moses appeals to four things. He makes four arguments. He appeals to, to God's fatherly affection. He appeals to God's reputation among the nations. He appeals to, to God's merciful nature and he appeals to the Abrahamic covenant, the promise God made to Abraham, meaning Moses appeals to four things about God. First, he appeals to God's fatherly love. Second, he appeals to God's glory. Third, he appeals to God's mercy. And fourth, he appeals to God's faithfulness. You know what Moses doesn't appeal to? The goodness or righteousness or innocence of Israel. At all. He doesn't argue that Israel just made a mistake. They just made a mistake, God. They were confused, they were deceived, I was up here, I'm their leader. They didn't really mean it. He doesn't say, say deep down, God, they, they had good intentions, they were really just trying to worship you, they just don't know how. He doesn't say, hey, hey God, they're, they're good people. With good hearts, they just made a mistake. He doesn't appeal to the righteousness of Israel at all. All four arguments are based off, off of God's nature, the goodness of God. He's asking God to give Israel what they don't deserve, which is mercy. Now, this is fundamentally different. It's a different argument than Abraham's argument in Genesis 18. You remember Genesis 18, where Abraham is interceding for Sodom? What does he ask God? 
God, if there's 50 righteous people in the city, we don't know if there's 40, no, 30. If there's just 10 righteous people in the city, he asks God, if there's just 10, spare the city. And what does God say? For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. What happens? It gets destroyed. What was Abraham appealing to? The righteousness of the people. Moses' intercession is just fundamentally different. Moses assumes Israel deserves wrath. They deserve to to be destroyed. He only appeals to God's mercy, to God's character, to God's goodness. Not to the goodness of the Israelites. And, And I think there's a powerful lesson we need to learn in this. We live in a self-esteem culture and our first instincts is often to try and build others up when they are down or in sin. And we sometimes do this by making excuses for their sins. You're not that bad of a person. You just made a mistake. Deep down, you have a good heart. That's what our culture would say. That's how you should counsel that person. Listen, like Moses, we we should never make excuses for sin. We should always point people to the character of God, his grace and his mercy. That's where true, listen, that's where true, if you really want to help that person out, that's where true comfort, true peace, and true assurance is found because we will keep on sinning. (laughs) leads me to my last point this morning and like I said we'll have to tackle this next week it's God's mercy it's three points of the sermon and they're all three important they actually all go together in a beautiful way God's, God's wrath just think of the gospel here God's wrath leads to God's intercessor which leads to God's mercy We are going to expand on this more next week, but just look at verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Listen, that's God's mercy. Israel deserved God's wrath, but in verse 14 it says, Yahweh relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. It's such an important verse. Now we're going to end here today, and we're going to finish the sermon next week, but, because there's so much to unpack in this, in this one verse, but I, I want to end today with this. Israel sinned horribly. They deserved nothing less than God's wrath, yet God relented from the disaster. He showed them mercy. He showed them grace. That's the nature of God. God is merciful and gracious. So let's end with God's mercy and grace. If you, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus this morning, here's the bad news. Just like Israel, God's wrath is aimed at you. Don't let God's patience fool you. In fact, Romans 2, 5 says this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. Did you hear that? This is the New Testament. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of of the living God. Yet, God is merciful, but his mercy is only found through his son. Jesus, the son of God, the God-man, came to earth as a baby. He grew up to be a man. He lived a perfect, sinless life and stood between God's wrath and us. He bore the penalty of our sins on the cross. He adored God's wrath so that whoever would trust and believe in him would have eternal life, would be saved. Listen, salvation comes only through faith in Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrections. Turn from your sins and repent and trust in him this morning. Let's pray. God, our Father, our Lord, God, I pray that you are with us, Lord, as we walk through this passage, Lord, that you would reveal truth, that you would reveal what you are showing us, Lord, that salvation is only found through your Son, that that this lie, Lord, that our culture preaches, that you are only a God of love, that there is no justice in you, there is no wrath in you, Lord. God, your love is seen so clearly because of your justice that you wouldn't sacrifice justice, that you would, you would send your son to absorb the wrath we deserve so that whoever trusts in him, Lord, would be saved. God, be with us. Help us see your son in this passage. In your son's name, amen.